I'd like to say we've been talking over the past month or so on some various subject titles, but let me just give you some of the things we've discussed. We've talked about Antichrist, the fallen away, the man of sin, the mystery of iniquity, the mark of the beast. I mean, to some degree, we've talked about the buying and the selling We've talked about the 666, the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. We've talked a little bit about the whore of Revelation, Mystery Babylon, the Tower of Babel, Nimrod, and shadow governments. Now, somebody says, did we go into extreme depth on any of them? Not necessarily, but we planted the seed. And so this morning I want to continue. I've entitled the message, The Reformation. How many knows when we talk about the Reformation, what we're talking about? It's, it's the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And by the way, I think it's the 31st of October in 15, I believe 17, I believe it's 500 years anniversary of the Protestant Reformation just within a few days. Now, I didn't know that until I got to uh, continuing on in my messages, and I, I really didn't, uh, you know, even think about that. But uh, since then, I've kind of uh, looked for a few details along that line. But nevertheless, I've entitled the message, The Reformation and Martin Luther Plus. Now, I want to go to Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet speaks here in verse number 1 of Isaiah 53. He says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. I'm going to skip through some, and I'll let you know where I'm going to. The latter portion of verse 2. There is no beauty that we should desire him. This is speaking of the Lord. When he come, he didn't take on, you know, a Hollywood style or Hollywood type. The Bible says in verse 3 that he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him. That means we considered him or valued him not. Verse 4. Surely he hath bore our grief. He hath carried our sorrows, yet, he did, yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isn't that good? How many knows who we're talking about here this morning? This is Jesus. This is our Lord. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And the first portion of verse number 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. The latter portion of verse 12 says, And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
The prophet states, who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm or the work of the Lord revealed? Now, chapter 53 certainly is dealing with the Lord. He's the word throughout the Bible. It's his book. It's his plan. It's his purpose and his revelation. He went to the cross, but he hangs there no more. Now, I was thinking, I have seen there is a church, a Roman Catholic church, the pontiff. He goes forth wherever he's going. If he's leading a parade or if he's coming out to stand, uh, you know, there at the Basilica uh, in St. Peter's Square, overlooking all of the people, uh, he holds a rod or a staff. And at the end of that staff, he still has Jesus on the cross. Still has Jesus on the cross. Now, somebody says, well, that's just a reminder that he went to the cross. Well, that might be the case, but I'm going to tell you something, and I'll say it to you this morning. He went to the cross, but he hangs there no more. He was placed in the tomb, but he only used it for a few short days. The tomb is not a holy place. There are many that still sell indulgences for people that travel to to that area to see the holy place where Jesus was supposedly to have risen from the grave. But he's not there anymore. He ascended into heaven where he intercedes in behalf of the believers. But he he doesn't conceal himself behind the confessional. Now, I want to say something about the confession booth down through history. And that's why we're going to have to look at history somewhat. Because the Bible prophesies and tells about certain things. But the days of the Bible were written. And in a sense, it's, a, it's closed in that sense that it, it has to rely on history to tell the story. Now, let me say that the confessional booth has probably been one of the the mightiest tools the Roman Catholic Church has had to gain secrets and information concerning uh, uh, just a penitent sinner. If a governor went into the confessional booth and confessed his sins, and he was to share some of his sins that, you know, have been so uh, bad in his life, do not think that that information was just just let go because the Catholic Church has used a lot of the confessional booth to gain personal information about the about a believer when they when they really believed they were confessing their sins I'm I'm not not saying that everything was retained but just say for instance that a woman had a weakness in her life and maybe had had an affair or a man had had an affair this church has used that confessional booth for a lot of times information that they can use against the believer. Hey, that's history. But I want to tell you something where Jesus is at. He is hearing your request and he's casting your sins, those that come to him with a genuine heart of repentance. He casts those sins as far as it is from the east to the west, to the depths in the bottoms of the sea. I want to go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament. Paul is speaking here. And I want to look at 
Verse number 9, I've entitled the message, The Reformation. For this cause, Paul says, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His, the Lord's will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, Unto all pleasing, listen to this, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That is a powerful verse. I mean, if it's telling you anything, if you're getting anything out of that other than being obedient unto God and knowing His will, then you're not sinking into what the message here is being taught in verse 10. He said, He continues, strengthened. With all might, according to his glorious power. Verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Which means truth. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Who hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. To whom we hath redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And we've talked about Satan's certain powers, for sure. Not lifting him up, but letting us realize how he works through antichrist spirits and all of these things that we've talked about in the last weeks. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now I want you to look at verse number 16. And he is what? He is the head of the body, which is what? The church. There is one head over the church. Amen? It's not a pastor. It's not a denomination. It's not any man whatsoever. The Bible says very clearly, he is the head of the body, which is the church. And we know the church is worldwide. There are believers worldwide. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That means the top rank. There's nobody that outranks the Lord. Amen? In no fashion or in any matter. Now, man can be a lot of things I've said before, but he can never be the head of the church. He, Christ, is head over the church in every nation, in every kindred, in every tongue, and all peoples. I could say to you this morning, every race and culture, the high, the low, the rich, the poor, male, female, ever want to be male and female, he is head over every Target store, over every Starbucks store. He is the creator. He is sovereign over everything. But only the church is his body, and only the church is his bride in which he is the head. Amen? He has departed, but he left the church behind, growing, growing, and feeding upon the word of God only. I saw something very alarming Yesterday on Facebook, 
Now, you can't believe everything just because it's on Facebook, but I knew this to be so because I'd, I'd seen just little portions of this. The North Carolina governor, who is a Democrat, he signed a bill forcing businesses to allow women in the men's restroom and forcing the businesses to allow men in the women's dressing room. i got news for you. I'm going to take my business elsewhere. Amen? Amen. And so when we see these things happening, these are just the inspiration of the beast of revelation that inspires this antichrist spirit. But God is sovereign. I want to get that into your minds here this morning. I want to take you to 2 Thessalonians for one verse. 2 Thessalonians. I think you're going to enjoy this this morning, or at least I hope you do. Uh, The Reformation, I've entitled it. Now, look what he says here in 2 Thessalonians. The second letter to the Thessalonians at chapter 1, I want to look at verse number 7. Paul says these words. And to you, listen to this, who are troubled. You tell me a Christian or a believer who has not had troubles or is not in troubles. Paul said rest with us. Do you notice that? He doesn't say rest in us. So Paul wasn't saying that in him or in anybody you're going to find what you need uh, for perfection in any way whatsoever. But he says, I'm going to tell you something. He said, rest, if you're troubled, rest with us. The time will come when the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Until then, rest with us, Paul said. He will come in flaming fire, verse 8, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with the everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, can I say this about the church? Because we find that after the days of the apostles, the Lord had ascended back up into heaven. We find it with the apostles through history how they were persecuted, how they were tortured, how they were torn apart. All of these things had been prophesied. But all of these things happened unto the church, and we only have history that records often so many of the details. But can I say something to the, to the saints that have held faithful to God's word since the beginning? God will bring his children through. I have stated the message concerns the Reformation, Martin Luther plus, and I will have to share some history since the Bible only points to the days ahead. And I want to read something to you right now that I think uh, this information will kind of let you know a little bit about when we were talking about the beast of Revelation, when we talked about the whore of Revelation, when we talked about these things. This is some of it, and I'll take it from some of the Dark Ages Uh, that it notes here. The darkness seemed to grow more dense. Image worship became more general. Candles were burned before images and prayers were offered to them. The most absurd and superstitious customs prevailed. The minds of men were so completely controlled by superstition that reason itself seemed to have lost its sway. While priests and bishops were themselves pleasure-loving and sensual and corrupt, it could only be expected that the people would look to them for guidance 
would be sunken in ignorance and vice. And this is what the church wanted in those days. After they had uh, invited um, the pagans to come in and uh, with, without having to give up any of their thoughts towards paganism, they brought them into the church. And we've seen how so much of this stuff had taken place. But the church loved to have people just as ignorant as ignorant can be. Amen? Another step in papal assumption was taken when in the 11th century, Pope Gregory VII proclaimed the perfection of the Roman church. Among the propositions which he put forth was one declaring that the church had never erred nor would it ever err according to the scriptures. But the scripture proofs did not accompany the, assert, the assertion. The proud pontiff also claimed the power to dispose emperors and kings and declared that no sentence which he pronounced could be reversed by anyone, but that it was his prerogative to reverse the decisions of all others. A striking illustration. And let me read this to you because this, I mean, unless you've studied some of these things, you would probably think these were extremely alarming, and they were, and most people don't review them, and most people don't hear them because they just don't want to even consider it. But listen to this just for a moment. A striking illustration of the character of this advocate of infallibility was given in his treatment of the German emperor, Henry IV. For presuming to disregard the Pope's authority, this monarch was declared to be excommunicated and dethroned. Terrified by the desertion and threats of his own princes, who were encouraged in rebellion against him by the papal mandate, Henry felt the necessity of making his peace with Rome. In company with his wife and a faithful servant, he crossed the Alps in midwinter that he might humble himself before the Pope. Upon reaching the castle where Gregory, where Gregory had withdrawn, he was conducted without his guards into an outer court and there in severe cold of winter with uncovered head and naked feet and in a miserable dress, he awaited the Pope's permission to come into his presence. He was going to ask for forgiveness. I told you about Jimmy Swaggart just a week or so back. How that Jimmy Swaggart threw, I know with all of my heart, my sister had sent him a book, my baby sister. And that book was Mystery Babylon. Not that he couldn't have bought it, but I don't know that at that time if, if God was working on him in some way because it was shortly, just weeks after that he got the book, that he began to make some of the assertions that, that history had proved of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, he's from uh, Baton Rouge, which is in the part of Louisiana where there is numerous, uh, very much Catholicism. And I love Jimmy Swaggart. I, I've always loved him. I loved his music. I loved him as a person, as a preacher. So he starts bringing out these uh, details. But what happens? At that time, he had the largest, I'm talking about the world's largest evangel evangelistic television ministry, radio television. So he goes on pursuing after revealing things about the Roman Catholic Church, trying to get Christians, you know, so-called Protestant Christians to remember some of the things and, you know, to, to not let those things just be a part of a okay in their ministry. And so it wasn't long he began to feel the, 
I mean, the squeeze of the money that had been coming in, it began to dwindle. And one time, me and Connie was watching television. Just so happened to be we was watching his program. He had gone to Boston, Massachusetts. And when he had gone to Boston, Massachusetts, he, vigor- he, he went before a Roman Catholic in a Roman Catholic church, or at least he was there and made the uh, apology. He apologized for coming against the church while he was in Boston, Massachusetts. You know we saw that, Connie. And it wasn't long after that that his ministry really began to take a downhill uh, dive. And uh, he was caught in some scandals and some things was about his ministry that his ministry never gained the one-time authority and power that it ever had. He's made some comebacks, but not in the degree that he had before. So you can envision this ruler. And this ruler had made the pontiff mad. And so he goes all of this distance and he's waiting to make an apology and a confession before the pontiff. Even then, it was only upon condition that the emperor should wait the sanction of the pope before uh, resuming uh, or exercising the power of royalty. And Gregory, elated with his triumph, boasted that it was his duty to pull down, this is the pontiff, pull down the pride of kings. Now, he waited, according to this, he waited three days before the Pope allowed him to come in. Outside in the cold and all of these kind of things. The advancing centuries witnessed a constant increase of error in the doctrines put forth from Rome. Even before the establishment of the papacy, the teachings of heathen philosophers had received attention and exerted an influence in the church. Many who professed conversion still clung to the tenets of their pagan philosophy and not only continued its study, but urged it upon others as a means of extending their influence among the heathen. Serious errors were thus introduced into the Christian faith. Prominent among these was a belief in man's natural immortality and his consciousness in death. Now I'm going to skip down through here just a little bit. Then the way was prepared prepared for the introduction of still another invention of paganism, which Rome named purgatory. I remember my grandma uh, Sweat was uh, never went to church in her life, as far as I know, never did. But she read her Bible every day. Really did I think love the Lord. So she's renting the house when they when they sell the farm. They they had a, a you know a big place that they farmed for years. And so they moved to Tulsa where Grandpa became, you know, a worker for Dad and for my dad's brothers. They were paint contractors. And so they were living there in West Tulsa, but the woman they were renting from was a uh, devout Catholic. And so uh, Miss Armowitch was her name, and she asked Grandma, she said, well, when I go down to the convent, when I go down to, you know, down to Broken Arrow there, she said, why don't you go with me sometime? So Grandma did. And so Miss Ermwich, you know, went in and did all of whatever she had to do and everything. Grandma was observant. And so when they came out of there, uh, she said, that she asked Miss Ermwich, she said, Miss Ermwich, she said, I, I don't understand pur- this purgatory. She said, I saw you putting money in. She said, well, my husband, he wasn't a devout Catholic. And she said, I've been paying him 
he's in purgatory, and I've been paying him out of purgatory. And Grandma said to her, you know, this little country lady, and she said to Miss Ermwich, she said, how do you know when he's done paid for? And she said, well, we don't worry about that. She said, what's left over goes for some poor Protestant. That's a fact. That is a fact. So here we get this purgatory, and we get these various doctrines that come along. I'm just reading these things along to you because they did point eventually to the Reformation. Now, still another fabrication was needed to enable Rome to profit by the fears and the vices of her adherents. This was supplied by the doctrines of indulgences, full remissions of sins, past, present, and future, and release from all the pains and penalties incurred were promised to all who would enlist in the pontiff's wars to extend his temporal dominion to punish his enemies and, ex- and to excommunicate, excommunicate those who dared deny his spiritual supremacy. The people were also taught that by the payment of money to the church they might free themselves from sin and also release the souls of their deceased friends who were confined in the tormenting flames. By such means did Rome fill her coffers, sustain the magnificence and luxury and vice of the pretended representatives of him who had not where to lay his head. The scriptural ordinance of the Lord's Supper had been supplanted also. And it was the idolatrous sacrifice of the mass. Papal priests pretend by their senseless mummery to convert the simple bread and wine into an actual body and blood of Christ. Cardinal Wiseman, the real presence of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the blessed Eucharist, proved from Scripture, he says in Lecture 8, Section 3, Paragraph 26. With blasphemous presumption, they openly claim the power of creating God. Listen to this. The creator of all things. Christians were required on pain of death to avoid, to avow their faith in this horrible, heaven-insulting heresy. Multitudes who refused were given to the flames. They were burnt. Now I'm coming up to the 13th century, and I'm briefing because I want to move on in just a little bit. In the 13th century was established the most terrible of all the engines of the papacy, which is the Inquisition. The prince of darkness wrought with the leaders of the papal hierarchy. In their secret council, Satan and his angels controlled the minds of evil men, while unseen in the midst stood an angel of God, taking the fearful record of their Inquisition decrees and writing the history of deeds too horrible to appear to human eyes. Babylon the Great was drunken with the wine of the saints. And so when you read the scripture sometimes, a little history will help open up your mind to the things that the scripture uh, is, is referring to. Now I want to turn to the Bible to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, just one verse there. The good Lord used... Uh, kind of after reading some of the things we've read, you can kind of see how this scripture really, uh, you know, has has such meaning. I want to look in the 13th chapter at verse number 37 of Mark. And the Lord said these words, And what I say unto you, who's he talking to? He was talking to the apostles, the disciples. And what I say unto you, I say unto all. Here's the word. Watch. What did Paul 
continuously say to the church in those days, and Peter and the apostles, do not be deceived. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, if it uh, smells like a rat, got caught in a rat trap, it's nine chances to ten a rat. Amen? I mean, that's, a, that's an awful stench is a dead mouse or a dead rat. But you've got to be on watch. And that's all what God is saying to us in his word. Now, I want to go to Revelation chapter 17. I'm going to read this chapter. It's only about 15, 16 verses, 18 maybe. But I want to read this to you this morning, and you follow with me. Just a little history uh, sometimes really opens up the scriptures to you. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked to me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I'll show thee the judgment of the great whore that setteth setteth upon many waters. Now that means peoples, and we're going to find it in another verse here in just a little bit. With whom the kings of the earth have committed what? Fornication. Spiritual adultery. They have done all of these things. Just kings of the earth. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her what? Of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, John said. And I saw a woman set upon a scarlet covered beast. It's a red beast. Full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. She was decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, and I don't think anywhere else in the King James Bible are you going to find capital letters all the way through, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of what? Harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now, when it says Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, that means that she has daughters. Amen? Her daughters are going to fit into the prophecies concerning end-time events especially. It says in verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk, with the blood of the saints, which means that she had killed, she had slew many. And we know that from the Roman Empire, then over into the Roman Catholic Church, which was a political and a religious system. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I'll tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which had the seven Heads and ten horns. The beast that thou saw was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman setteth. This is the church because in prophecy when it talks about the woman, it's talking about the church. We know that God's bride is a pure uh, virgin bride. 
And we know that. That's the bride of Christ. It's the church. But not the adulterated church. So then we find counter to that, we find this harlot that is the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And we find her setting up on these mountains in which you can go to Rome and in that area and you can see there are actually seven mountains. But he's going to explain that. Now, he says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman set us. She ruled over those. And therefore, are, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen. One is and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue for a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. A short period of time. These have one mind and shall give their power and their strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him, and I read this last week, they're what? They're called, they're what? Chosen and faithful. The calling and the choosing is God's part. The being faithful is your and my part. Verse 15, and brother, there were those that were martyred that were faithful unto God. I mean faithful unto God to the end. Now, he says here, the waters which thou sawest, verse 15, where the horse sets, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The ten horns which thou saw upon the beast, these shall hate the whore. There will come a time when they will hate the whore, and shall make her desolate, naked, and shall eat her flesh, and shall burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Verse number 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now Henry IV comes to the pontiff back in the 13th century, I believe it was. He wants to apologize because he didn't put any emphasis upon serving the Pope, the pontiff at that time. He found out that, I mean, he was in trouble. So he spends that winter going across the Alps, freezing, cold, taking his family and a companion. And when he gets to where the pontiff is, the pontiff won't see him for three days. Makes him stay on the outside. You tell me that there is not a heart of unrighteousness there. I mean self-exalted. Everything the devil has spoken about in the book of Ezekiel when it talked about how he wanted to exalt his throne uh, you know, to the very highest part. I mean, he was full of the Antichrist spirit in his heart. We've talked about that. I'm not going to go back into that. But I want to read you something else now. Uh, let me find it here real quick. It says that Babylon spread her dogma, that's her teaching, in every area of man's existence. Religion, politics, economics, the buying and the selling. You see what I'm saying? 
And it is readily evident that man has adopted the practice and behavior of this city, which in God's book is defined as a whore who has successfully seduced the rich, the merchants, the kings, the rulers of the earth, as well as the religionists. They have all gone to her brothel to drink of her wine. Now, I want to look real quick into the book of Revelation 18. I want to look at verse 4 through 8. Revelation 18, verse 4 through 8. John said, I heard another voice from heaven saying, listen to this, come out of her, what? My people. It would be wrong of us to assume that there wasn't any good qualities or good people in that system. We don't argue against the people We argue and stand against the pontiff and against the policies and himself saying he is the vicar of Christ or the vicar of Christ. We go against the teachings and the teachings only. I've said it so many times. Some of the people I've worked for in 45 years of business that I have worked for, some of the greatest people that treats treated me and my people that worked for me and my sons treated us with not only dignity but treated us to their home, their house, their keys, all of their codes, everything else have been some of the Roman Catholic people. That just, they they just have been real great people. That doesn't mean all of them, but that means the majority of them. And so I have a lot of respect there. But God has people within that system and the cry is come out of her my people because if you linger and stay in the wrong place it would just be like lingering and staying at the ark but not getting on the inside the safety of the ark. Do you see what I'm saying? So we find that and we find that you know you can tarry a little too long in the wrong place. God will be merciful but there's a time where you have surpassed his mercy and surpassed his grace. He said that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. Now, and can I just say something? It's not just the sins, again, it's not just the sins of the harlot whore, but it's also the sins of her daughters. Don't leave her daughters out of this. I'm going to talk to you just a little bit. I don't know if I can get it all in today, but I will be talking to you a little bit about the dollars. Now, how much, verse 7 says, she hath glorified herself. She has lived deliciously. I mean just exalted. I mean just, you know, just everything so elaborate. Isn't it amazing, though, that on, uh, I believe it's Christmas Eve. It's Easter time, too, but it's at Christmas Eve that all the networks at the the certain time all over the world they go to Vatican City they go to Vatican City and they watch the um the priest the pope and all of his entourage and all of the rituals that they do they they go there to show you that the mass of uh, Christmas at that time uh, is such a worldwide event. I mean, it, it's just staggering how that if you would take the time, when you look up news media people, when you look up so many governors, and when you look up senators, and you look up all of these things, just click over there and find out their religion. 
Why do you think the borders haven't been closed by the Democrats or the Republicans at Mexico? Use some common sense. It ain't just so that they can all be uh, field workers. Huh? What do you bring with them when they come? You bring their traditions. You bring their religions. I mean, it's all, I mean, it's right there as plain as a nose on your face, but of course, nobody wants to mention that. They just, you know, want to mention it's not right to take the children's bread, the children's jobs, and give them to the undocumented. Well, I agree with that, but I'm talking about the shadowy things of government. You don't always see what's behind the scene. Amen? I mean, sometimes this stuff is working and it works right in her face, but we still don't see it because we're blind to it. She has glorified herself. She has lived deliciously or abundantly. And look what the word says. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I set a queen. And brother, did we talk about that a little bit back there when we talked about Semiramis and the queen of heaven and all of that kind of stuff just briefly? I'm hoping to stir your interest a little to go back into some of the stuff that you probably already know, but maybe maybe uh, you've just been you know, too busy doing something else. But nonetheless, I'm not a widow, she says, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death, mourning, famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Now, now, I want to touch on this word Protestant. What does the word really indicate? Protest. It means protest. Thus the reformation of protest to the church of Rome. Can I say to you that Luther was not an outsider, but he was an insider. He was an insider. And so Luther goes, it's been almost 500 years to the day, that Luther goes and Luther not t- attaches to the door. I don't know how he done it. Some say a nail. But he attaches his 95 thesis. He protests. Attaches it to the door. And he comes under a lot of uh, hatred and bitterness and such. But do remember, he wasn't a Christian believer that was, uh, let's, let's say, a commandment keeper to the 100th degree. He was a church member, a priest within, and he rebelled in his protest and attaches a 95 thesis to the door. Now, I want to read you something else because this will, this will I'm going to bring this to a close, but I want to read this to you. I ain't closing yet, so hang on. Now, how many has ever went bowling? We worked for a lady that, it would be a long story, but she's like almost 90 years old, and she bowls like, uh, if not daily, at least it's two or three times weekly. She's always bowled, therefore her body's trained to the bowling. She's she's done a lot of things she's a wonderful lady very wealthy lady but let me say, tell you something you may not have known this is a f- some facts concerning Martin Luther bowling enth- enthusiasts can thank Martin Luther for the game he is said to have been the first to place nine uh, kegels, kegels 
which means clubs carried by German men for protection, into a diamond shape and standardized the game called Kegelspiele, or nine pins. So when you go bowling, you can thank Martin Luther that Martin Luther uh, came up with a bowling. But to be a little bit more serious, uh, it says that more books have been written about Martin Luther than about any other person in history with the exception of Jesus Christ. It is, it is said that his writings will be found in 102 large volumes. And again, October the 31st, 1517, which would be almost 500 years, and you're going to see a big celebration for, uh, by the, the Protestants, uh, at least those that protested the Catholic Church to some degree. Uh, when Luther there in on the door of the Castile Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and uh, I don't know if any if has anybody ever read the full list of those ninety five. I don't know if that's ever been in a long time ago. I haven't, and I didn't take the time to do it in this study. But uh, there was a lot of things that were listed in that 95. And I'm going to alarm you with something that wasn't listed there. But it was claimed that there were enough relics. And he certainly went against those relics in the Castile Church in Wittenberg to get pilgrims 1,902,202 years and 270 days knocked off of their time in purgatory. So there are that many relics that you could purchase. I didn't write this stuff. Luther experienced more opposition, listen to this, from reformers than he did from the Roman Catholics. And by the way, if you're ever studying and you want to go back, and I studied some of this, believe it or not, I went to school, and believe it or not, some of this was history in our history lessons. I mean, it was in there. And we knew some of this then. But all of it, of course, has been taken out now. And, uh, you know, they, they don't have this in there. They, they have changed some of their format, and I won't get into all of that. But nonetheless, he experienced more opposition from other reformers than he did from the Roman Catholics. And so in just reading that little paragraph, it, I realized that there must have been, at that time, others that had a lot more things they wanted to attach maybe. He was, let's give him credit for what he did. He did do what he did. But listen to this. Rudolf Karlstadt, he was Luther's friend, he was a fellow reformer, and he urged the reformers to reject Rome's claim of a sacred Sundayness and return to the seventh-day Sabbath. Luther opposed his radical idea, even though he admitted Karlstadt's learning was superior to his own. Luther and other former reformers were united with Roman Catholics in their hatred of Anabaptist. During 25 years of persecution, thousands of Anabaptists were executed for their faith. Catholics usually burned them at the stake, and Protestants usually drowned them. So when we're talking about the Reformation, it's just like the Satan, Satan can disguise himself the Bible says is an angel of light. What does that mean? Do you know we had a, a person when we were in the church in Sand Springs years and years ago, we had a man that was an ex-communist. He was a communist. He was an elderly man. And he told us one time, he said, do you know who got hot lunches in the public school systems into America? He said it was 
the communist. They will do good. They will sit down with you. The antichrist-spirited people will sit down with you. Read the creed of the Jesuits. Read the creed of the Illuminati. Read these creeds and find out what they will do for the Roman Catholic Church. They will even, one of them will take the role as being the good guy. The other will take the role as being the bad guy. They even have to say for the purpose of furthering Catholicism that they are willing that one will kill the other for the good. Do you see what I'm saying? We look at John F. Kennedy. He was slain. He was shot. I mean, some of that's coming out. Some of it may never come out. He was the first Roman Catholic that was ever a president of the United States. Somebody says, well, how come he didn't get to continue? They actually gained more sympathy by his death than they would have had had he stayed in there. Do you see what I'm saying? These are things that you got to kind of get your head up out of the sand. You kind of got to open your eyes from time to time. Sometimes, as Paul said, they will come in in sheep's clothing. Now, let me continue just for a minute. Let me turn this page. Listen to this. Luther, and here, here's some things you may not know about Luther. And I do agree that when there was the Protestant Reformation, there, there also was a, uh, I want to call it, and it slips my name right now, but it was the anti, the anti part of coming out and, and the church, and you, you can read all about it, how the church with the Jesuits said, here's how we will approach that. And so they go through their reproach to that. So certainly they could scandal anybody they want to scandal. If they Right now, if they want to dig up anything on a man or a woman, all they got to do with so much saved information, you lost all of your privacy. You know that it's gone. So whatever you've done, if you was mean to a dog, I guarantee you something, if you kicked the dog one time or put him out of your car while you was hauling him off, if they can find out about that, they will take care of you by that information. The same as I said to you before about the Catholic confessional booth. The Catholic confessional booth. Now I've got to say, add this. And it ain't going to hurt you if you stay over just a fraction. I don't even know where we're at right now. But I ain't going to hold you much longer. But I always liked Tom Selleck. He was probably Tom Selleck and probably my John Wayne number two. And so I always liked him. He's a great cowboy. He was a great in Magnum P.I. He was just a good actor. He seemed like a real nice guy. He's always been, you know, that, that part, of, part that he played. Currently, he's in a series that's going on its ninth year now. And uh, it's a, he's a, he is a uh, police captain, chief. Uh, in a show called Blue Bloods. The th- reason I dislike the show is because always they close it just kind of like uh, Duck Dynasty closed it with everybody in the family at the end of the show. They're kind of sitting around the table. Well, they're all Roman Catholics. So they're all sitting around the table, and, you know, you find out this, find out this. Well, one day it shows him in one series. We ain't watched him since. I still like him, but I, I, I don't like the part he was playing. Anyway, so he goes into the confessional booth. And while he's in the confessional booth, he's talking to the priest there on this show, currently one of the top shows on television. And so he goes into the confessional booth, and while he's in there, the priest is telling him that is there, the high up there in New York, 
he hits the one he goes to, and he told him, he said, there's one thing you haven't done as yet. And he's going to absolve him of all of his sins and everything, and he's obviously been doing that for some time because it showed part of that. He's always talking to him. He wanted him to bow down and to kiss his ring. And Tom Selly goes down on his knees and kisses his ring. In other words, regardless of anything in life, you are, you are the extremeness of good. Do you see what I'm saying? And so right there I said to myself, Tom Selleck, I, I still like Quigley Down Under. I still like all of these shows, but I don't like this show at all. Now, let me take you here. Luther referred to Jews, listen to this, as these dreggy, dreary dregs, stinking scum, this dried up froth, this moldy leaven and boggy morris of jewelry, which is Jews and princes, are nothing but rotten, stinking, rejected dregs of their father's lineage. Therefore, whenever you see a genuine Jew, Luther wrote, you may with good conscience cross yourself and bluntly say, there goes a devil incarnate. Luther's sincere advice for dealing with the Jews, first their synagogues, should be set on fire. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach any more. Fifthly, passports and travel privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. This was in Germany. Sixthly, they ought to be stopped from usury, which is drawing interest on money. Seventhly, let the young and strong Jews and the Jewesses, the women, be given the fail or the axe or the hoe or the spade or the spindle and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. We ought to drive them rascals lazy bones out of our system. Therefore, away with him. If this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you that you uh, and we may all be free of the insufferable devilish burden, the Jews. Let us emulate the common sense of other nations, Luther wrote. Then eject them forever from the country, for as we have heard, God's anger with them is so intense that gentle mercy will only tend to make them worse and worse. Therefore, in any case, away with them. Now listen to this. It's called Christenach. In parenthesis, in German, means night of broken glass. It was the night in 1938 when Nazis, when Nazis broke the windows of Jewish homes, businesses, and synagogues. Buildings were burned and Jews were brutalized. This is now considered the event that launched the Holocaust in its full fury. The date chosen by the Nazis for Kristallnacht was November the 9th, the eve of Martin Luther's birthday, to honor the great reformer. Deutsch Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who opposed the Nazis and was martyred later for his opposition, wrote the date of Kristallnacht in the margin of his Bible by Psalm 74, 8, which reads, They say in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues in the land. At the Nuremberg war crimes trials, Julius Steicher, one of Hitler's officials who pushed the hardest for the extermination of the Jews, quoted from Luther's writings to defend the final solution. 
Some good news is that on the 500th anniversary of Luther's birth, the World Lutheran Federation repudiated Luther's anti-Semitism with the following statement. We cannot accept or condone the violent verbal attacks that the Reformer made against the Jews. The sins of Luther's anti-Jewish remarks and the violence of his attacks on the Jews must be acknowledged with deep distress and all occasion for similar sin in the present and the future must be removed from our churches. Lutherans of today refused, refused, refused to be bound by all of Luther's utterance against the Jews. Now, let me just say, <laughs> I mean, that sounds good, but it's kind of strange. It's kind of like remaining Catholic and reassigning pedophile priests to go and preach more Catholicism. The Lutherans should have abandoned his name. I mean, this the history's out there. Some of the things he done was good. He was partly good and partly bad. But do you know the Bible says that, I mean, if there's a bad apple in the bunch, what's it going to do? It's going to ruin everything. Now, I want to close with this, and I think you'll be blessed for staying. This won't take you just a little bit. The Bible says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Seeing you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. Here are they, the Bible says, in another place that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Yeshua. It seems that most mainstream Christians cannot fully grasp the tremendous, important role of God's holy Sabbath has placed in the church history. For instance, what part did the Sabbath play in the Reformation? The Reformers paid a terrible price for their rejection of the Seventh-day Sabbath and for their refusal to accept it as an article of revolt against the Catholic Church, they flatly rejected the Sabbath rest of the Scriptures. They claimed to follow the written word only, as the Bible we now call it, and to refuse the traditions of the church. But Sunday is a tradition of the Roman church that has not one text word of divine authority. Martin Luther was not the staunch advocate of truth that many suppose. He is highly praised for claiming to follow the scriptures only. He stated that he was discarding all tradition. He and the reformers were challenged at the termination of the Council of Trent by the Archbishop of Rego. He said all their claims of disregarding tradition were false as long as they retained Sunday. This is what this cardinal, this, this pope said at that time. This rejection of the seventh-day Sabbath was also a tradition that we, the Catholics, instituted. This change in the day of worship is nowhere to be found in the Scriptures. Almost unknown to most Christian literature is the name of Andreas Rudolf B. Karlstadt the great apostle of the Seventh-day Sabbath. He was born in Karlstadt, Bavaria in, 19, in 1480 and died in Basel, Switzerland on December the 25th, 1541 at the age of 61 years. Karlstadt was a personal friend and co-worker with Martin Luther but strenuously opposed him on the Sabbath issue. Karlstadt observed the Seventh-day Sabbath and taught its observance. D. Angeba says that Luther himself admitted that Karlstadt was superior in his learning. And it gives these page book references. The rejection of the Sabbath at the Council of Trent at once crippled the advance of the 
Reformation. Protestants and Protestant reformers will be held responsible on Judgment Day for their unfaithfulness at a time when the entire Roman church pivoted towards discarding all tradition. At this point, let us refer to eminent Dr. Dowling in his History of Romanism. In Book 2, Chapter 1, it says, The Bible and the Bible only is the religion of Protestants. It is further of no account in the estimation of a genuine Protestant how early a doctrine originated if it's not found in the Bible. Hence, if a doctrine be profound, be, be propounded for his, its acceptance, he asks, it has to be found in the inspired word. Was it taught by the Lord Jesus Christ or his apostles? It did not matter to him whether it had been discovered in some ancient visionary of the 3rd or 4th century or whether it emerged from the fertile brain of some modern visionary of the 19th century. If it was not found in the sacred scriptures, it presented no valid claim to be revealed as an article of his religious creed. He who receives a single doctrine from the mere authority of tradition by so doing steps down from the Protestant rock, passes over the line that separates Protestantism from popery, and gives no reason why he should not receive all the earlier doctrines and ceremonies of Romanism. Now, just two more quotes. Dr. Bishop Eli the observance of the seventh day was being revived in Luther's time by Karlstadt. Karlstadt held the divine authority of the Sabbath from the Old Testament. Karlstadt said, in regard to the ceremonies of the church, all are to be rejected which have not, have not a warrant in the Bible. But listen to what Luther asserted on the contrary. He said, whatsoever is not against the scripture is for it. And Karlstadt said, no, not so. We are bound to the Bible, and no one may decide after the thoughts of his own heart. How many of you feel like you are bound to the Bible and the Bible alone? Amen? We were born into God's church, which he is the head. Amen? We don't sign our name on some document. We don't do, and I mean you could not read all of the information on the traditions of the Roman church. You could not do that in, I mean, I don't know how long it would take, but you couldn't do that in a short period of time. Ah, we're going to figure out where the daughters of this harlot system fits in. We'll talk about that maybe next time. Can you stand with me this morning?